Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I remember taking tape, like packing tape, and I remember taping my belly around and around and then putting a dress on and then there was no belly. I walked pretty stiff, I think, that whole time and I sweat like crazy, but I think that was probably one of the first times I took measures to modify how my body looked. Hey y'all and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today is part two of our Unladylike Detox from Diet Culture. Last week, we kicked things off with Dietland star Joy Nash and her feminist embrace of fatness. If you haven't listened, definitely check it out. And in this episode, we're investigating how America's ladylike dieting hamster wheel of bullshit was built in the first place. And what keeps us spinning today. This is the joy for me. I love bread. I love bread. I now just manage it, so... I don't deny myself bread. I have bread every day. I love bread too, Oprah. Mm. And to be honest, Caroline, I find it easier to love bread than to love my body. Yeah, I said it. Like, even though it's at total odds with my feminism, even though Oprah loving bread is one of my favorite jokes, like, I feel like sometimes I have to fight myself to stay off that hamster wheel. Same. And I mean, honestly, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that we are a few generations deep into this hot mess at this point. Yeah, we are. For more than a century now, dieting for thinness and constant body dissatisfaction have become practically part of the American female condition. Like, it's a hallmark way that we're expected to bond over feeling too fat or hating our this, that, and the other. But Kristen... We live in a feminist, body-positive era now, right? I mean, on our Instagram feeds, we do. (laughs) And sure, women and girls are way more aware of bogus body standards, but that's only scratching the surface. Mainstream feminism still rarely looks beyond sexism when it comes to diet culture, although, as we're going to learn today, it's also rooted in a racist pursuit of aspirational white femininity. And look, weight loss or wanting to lose weight is not in and of itself problematic. Like, as feminists, we strongly believe that women can and should decide for themselves what feels right for their bodies. But the implication that all women should be constantly dieting to shrink themselves, like, that is what we're trying to decode today. And to help us do that, we're talking today to the unladylike listener who inspired this two-part detox to begin with, and a guest who's made it her mission to bring women of color into the body-positive conversation. It's all to find out, what messages has diet culture really been feeding us beyond the losing weight thing? And how can we unlearn them? (laughs) 
I can read that now. Is that good? Yeah, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. I can remember hating my body from the young age of eight. Since I was 15, I've been on all kinds of diets from Weight Watchers to the Master Cleanse. And all of those I did alongside my mom. Caroline, this two-part combo all started with an email we received from Unladylike listener Haley. She's 23 and lives in San Diego. And this line from her email is really what jumped out at us. When did it become the norm for women to bond over what they're eating or, should I say, not eating? We're going to directly answer this question a little later in the show. But first, we wanted to spend some time with Haley. Because this whole mother-daughter dieting connection is really real. While the media and beauty industry often get blamed for fueling female body issues, a lot of those lies that get stuck in our heads come from the folks around us. One of the things that we would do together uh, as bonding would be to go to the gym or go for a run. Uh, we would go hike up to the nearest water tower. Since I have sort of taken a step back and reevaluated my relationship with food and exercise, that is something that I don't want to do with her anymore because when we do it, we talk about weight. Daughters of moms who diet are actually likelier to diet themselves, and further research has found that teen girls' desires to be thin is at least partly based on what they think their moms want them to look like, starting in childhood. How would you describe the body image and dieting messages that you received as a kid? I... Remember it starting off as comments about, did you actually go to school looking like that? Or sometimes it was around like, you need to brush your hair. You need to make sure that you're presentable, which makes sense. It's all in good intentions. I think she mm -hmm. wanted me to be perceived as a presentable human being. <laughs> and then it's <laughs> it sort of turned into, so I would go to my grandma's house every day after school and I would have a snack after school because I was a growing kid. And, you know, if I was eating my snack, when my mom came to pick us up, she would say, why are you eating? We're going to eat dinner in two hours. And when I saw those two messages together, the message of why did you go to school looking like that? And why are you eating those things? That together really had an impact on the way I saw myself. As this started kind of happening and you're kind of putting those messages together, what then did food kind of become, if not nourishment? It became dangerous, I think. What kinds of foods were the dangerous ones? Oh, man. Ice cream, chips and dip. I remember um, chips and dip being something that when my mom was having a binge, honestly, I can look back now and describe it as a binge, she would get a bag of ruffles and a like tub of sour cream and kind of eat the whole thing for dinner. And from that point on, I could not go to a party with chips and dips there that I wasn't so excited, and I just kind of hung out by the food table, just <laughs> hoping I could get some more chips and dip soon. The danger that Haley saw in food was also kind of thrilling. 
Except afterwards, that thrill would eventually morph into guilt. And that guilt gave way to anxiety that she might gain weight and her mom might notice. Why do you think that your mom was so hyper-concerned about what you were eating, how you looked? I think my mom in particular, I think she was harder on me because she had terrible body image growing up. She gained a lot of weight in high school and had children really young. And I think that it turned into a spiral of just her hating her body and gaining more weight because of that. And eventually she got gastric bypass surgery. And a lot of what she passed on to me was her hoping that that wouldn't happen to me. And I have had a conversation with her around, I just don't want you to end up the way I did. And that conversation happened when I was 16. Haley knows that her mom wasn't trying to wreck her self-esteem or really anything intentionally negative. Yeah, I mean, Haley says she really looked up to her mom and loves her. Like, this is a woman who took the lead in their family. She encouraged Haley to pursue activities that she loved in high school, like gymnastics and softball. She just, you know, maybe wasn't the best body image role model. My mom uh, got gastric bypass surgery, dropped a lot of weight, And went from being someone who was embarrassed in public, didn't really talk to many people, didn't have a lot of friends, didn't go out on weekends, to being someone who was loud, excited, happy, screaming at sports games. And seeing that really highlighted to me that the only way that you could live a happy life was if you were smaller. At 14, Haley started actively monitoring her weight. She did the master cleanse. Her whole family even went on a juice diet. But I think that the moment when it really kicked up and when I became the most concerned about my body was I met my boyfriend at the time. He's my current husband when I was 16. And at that point, I started to gain more weight because I also had a job. I had more money to spend. We went out to eat together. Uh, One day... I came home and I had only been dating my boyfriend for about two months at this point. And my mom said to me, are you pregnant? And I said, no, I'm not pregnant. I was very, very, very far from being ready to even have sex. She had never had a conversation with me about sex. And she said, well, it looks like you're getting a little bit of a tummy. You should probably stop eating so much fast food. And That moment was really what I've pinpointed as the moment where dieting became very important to me and being smaller was very important. And if my mom noticed that I might be pregnant, then what are other people thinking? Did it make you wonder what your boyfriend thought? I asked him, and he has always been the most loving, like, obsessed with me (laughs) man that you can ever imagine he's like you're perfect stop you're perfect like he would just say that over and over and over again did you believe him though at the time I was like well your opinion doesn't matter like you don't even notice if I if my body has changed because you just think it's perfect so no I didn't believe him (laughs) not even a little Haley's hyper focus on her size and shape didn't stop when she left the house 
In middle school and early high school, she did gymnastics. The other girls were always talking about their bodies. And Haley was constantly comparing, you know, was she bigger than them, smaller? Ugh, and I gotta say, Caroline, this brings me right back to taking ballet as a girl, like just staring at my thighs in the mirror and my pink tights, just trying to see if the other girl's thighs touch as much as mine did. And the answer was always no. God, I hate it. And for Haley, there was no escape. She was always confronting her supposed flaws. Haley says the first time she can remember making herself throw up a meal was when she was 16. And from there, it became a routine. Fast, binge, feel guilty, vomit, fast again. Sometimes her so-called binge was just eating a normal meal. And for a while, too, Haley kind of shrugged off that routine as part of just watching her weight. And this gets to just how insidious dieting culture can be, precisely because it can quickly blur those lines between minding the scale and full-blown eating disorders. I thought that it was eating disorder behaviors, but not an eating disorder. I knew that it was a not good thing to do, and I just thought it was something that I'm just going to do it once or I'm just going to do it twice. Almost like it was, I can choose to not do it. You know, I got this under control. A hundred percent. By the time she was a junior in college, that cycle increasingly left Haley feeling out of control. But then one random day, Haley went for a long drive and she started searching through her mom's audiobooks for something to listen to. And I uh, found a book and it was titled, How I Gave Up Dieting and Got a Life. And I was like, ooh, I want to listen to this. It was like just about the right amount of time for my drive. And I was like, I want to listen to this. The book is a funny self-help style memoir by Kelsey Miller. And it explains this concept of intuitive eating, which is basically a practice that helps people get more in tune with their body and how they consume food. To be clear, intuitive eating is not a diet. In fact, some folks gain weight through the practice. But it helps you move away from that idea that foods are dangerous. And after listening to the audiobook, Haley kind of put the idea on the back burner. Life went on. She got engaged. But with that wedding planning came the familiar pressure to lose weight and the dread that came along with it. Then Haley remembered that intuitive eating memoir and thought, hey, maybe it's worth a shot. You know, it probably started off as maybe this is how I can lose weight. If I just eat like a normal person, then maybe... I can just lose weight without having to diet. And so I called a dietitian, and during our first meeting, she was like, uh, you know you have an eating disorder, right? And I was like, uh, no. And she was like, yeah, I think I would suggest that you see a therapist. And from there, that's when my journey really started. How did you feel when you heard the dietitian, a.k.a. a professional, say that, that you had an eating disorder? I remember feeling like I played it up too much. Like she only thinks that because of what I told her and I told her what I told her was something way more serious than it actually is. I also looked at it as an excuse. Like, no, you don't get to start gaining weight now. And your excuse is that, oh, well, you had an eating disorder before and that's why you're gaining weight now. And it took a lot to break down that idea as well. One thing that's really interesting about my story is that I can remember having an eating disorder at my largest and my smallest weights. 
So that was that is still one of the biggest things to me is that we are acknowledging that these things can happen to people no matter what they look like. That mental and emotional struggle at every size is so real. But with help from her therapist and her dietitian, Haley started on her journey to recovery. She began intuitive eating in earnest. And she decided not to try to lose weight for her wedding. Leading up to it, I had a couple questions like, oh, are you getting in fighting shape for the wedding? Or um, like, are you dieting super hard? And I said, you know, actually, I want to look on my wedding day the way that I will look for the rest of my life. Uh, And I think that was the work. The work was trying to find, you know, this authentic person that I am. Have you seen the photos? And do you, when you see yourself in those photos, is that what you see, your authentic self? Yeah, I do. I, um, at first it was hard. I noticed myself picking at them, picking apart little pieces of them. But it is so rewarding to know that I worked really hard to do that. And I'm still working really hard to look at those pictures and and feel really happy about it. Haley is one year into recovery, but she says she already feels radically different about food. She's comfortable with it now in a way that just wasn't possible before. To put it bluntly, I don't hate myself as much as I did before. Like, I can actually see myself as a valuable person no matter what my body looks like or what my clothes look like or what my hair looks like that day, which is a really big change. I do want to circle back to your mom because one thing that you mentioned at the beginning of our chat was that you still haven't been able to have the conversation with her about dieting. But I'm wondering if it's not too personal, what you wish you could say to her. Mm-hmm. What I wish that I could say to her now is when does it end for you? And I wish that I could tell her that there's so much more to talk about and to bond over and to really learn about each other if we put it to the side because the best version of ourselves has nothing to do with food and nothing to do with dieting. It has to do with finding our authentic selves. And I wish that I could see hers. Whatever the best version of you looks like is up to you. To help us figure that out, though, it's important to understand not just what's going into our bodies, but also the cultural systems at work behind the dieting scenes. Because, as we're about to unpack after the break, those systems are after a lot more than women just making themselves more petite. Stick around. We're back, and before we jump into the cultural claptrap, let's get a little more personal. (laughs) Yes, let's, because Caroline, like most of us probably do, 
I have a complicated relationship with my body. Sure, same. <laughs> I mean, so when I think about it, I, I remember my grandfather once describing me as a husky child. No. And, <laughs> and I definitely felt like a husky child because I couldn't fit into my older sister's hand-me-downs. And even though I was like eight or nine, I could tell that that stressed out my mom. So when she remarked once that maybe I should start doing sit-ups with my older brother who like worked out all the time and was super fit, I took her advice. Well, what happened? Well, I pretty much dedicated my teenage years to a low-key eating disorder and an obsessive sit-ups regimen. And with the help from a puberty growth spurt, I did lose the weight, Caroline. Mm, getting tall helps. Yeah, I got real skinny. I mean, I went back and looked in my childhood diaries, and I quote from my 12-year-old self, This summer was so good. People are calling me beautiful, and I lost 10 pounds at camp. Parentheses. I'm very weight conscious. Oh, baby Kristen. I, I mean, honestly, though, that sounds familiar. Like, I was definitely worried about my weight as a kid, too. It probably didn't help that my mom would take me along to pick up her Nutrisystem meals. <laughs> well, Caroline, there's actually a term for what keeps all of that worrying and striving we witnessed from our moms and then internalized ourselves. It's something called false hope syndrome. And the way it works is that basically we first buy into a diet's like usually empty promises that if we follow its rules, we'll get thinner and life is just going to be grand. Yeah, I mean, typically you'll have some success at first, but then kind of plateau and eventually quit. And when your weight loss dreams don't come true and life isn't suddenly amazing, you then assume it's your fault for just not having the willpower to continue not eating. But it's not our fault, Caroline. No, it's not. We are placing our false hope in a weight loss system where an estimated 95% of us will regain at least whatever it was that we lost over the next five years. And look, the $66 billion weight loss industry knows this. It's known that for a long time, y'all. Because think about it. It would be impossible to keep raking in all that cash from our fat phobia if diets magically made us over like they promised. And meanwhile, it sprinkles shaming language like guilt-free or cheat days that further reinforce that self-blame and keep us spinning. And, and not just the dieters either. Like any of us can project that false hope syndrome onto bodies that, quote-unquote, should just lose weight already or would be so pretty if only you just slim down. Okay, but when did American women start spinning out so much about our weight and why? That's what we're going to tackle in Unpack the Claptrap. Unpack the Claptrap is the part of the show where we dig through patriarchy's dumpster trash to find out why things are the way they are. And speaking of patriarchy, first off, Caroline, we should note that dudes were the first dieters. In fact, in 1863, a British guy named William Banting publishes what some consider the first modern diet booklet called Letter on Corpulence. And it was so popular that Banting became a ye olde slang for dieting. Yeah, and for about 30 years, though, y'all, this was exclusively a guy thing. Women were presumed to be too biologically inferior to exert the self-control and discipline that dieting required. It also would have been highly unladylike for women to follow Banting's <laughs> rules of smoking a lot, uh, going rowing every now and then, and being sure to eat meat four times a day. That's a lot. <laughs> but here's the twist. It was actually 
white suffragists who co-opted banting and dieting as a way to prove gender equality, as a way to say to men, look, we have just as much strength, self-discipline, and willpower to slim ourselves down, so maybe we should have a little bit more social and political autonomy. How about that for a twist? Also, cautionary tale, careful what you co-opt. Dieting and thinness really came in for women as a beauty standard rather than as a suffragist statement starting in the 1920s. Thanks in part to the rise of Hollywood starlets and slender, flat-chested, flapper fashion trends. Women increasingly became willing to eat anything, or very little at all, to get that flapper figure, and without the old-school aid of corsets. So in 1925, for instance, Lucky Strike's cigarette ads began urging women to, quote, reach for a Lucky instead of a sweet. Or you could try one of the most popular fad diets of the 20s called the Hollywood 18-Day Diet, which limited ladies to grapefruit, oranges, Melba toast, green vegetables, and hard-boiled eggs. Yum. Oh, it's like a never-ending dry brunch. <laughs> <laughs> After World War II ended and Rosie the Riveters were made over into June Cleavers, dieting cookbooks became wildly popular. And at that point, women weren't just counting calories, but also eliminating fats and even pill-popping to slim down. Like this ad from the 1950s. What's the best way to reduce? Eat plenty or starve yourself? Starve yourself? Wrong. A half-empty stomach causes hunger tantrums. Now with the RDX Full Stomach Reducing Plan, you fill your stomach, avoid hunger tantrums, lose excess weight naturally and fast. And safe, pleasant-tasting RDX tablets contain no dangerous drugs, no hormones. So if your doctor has told you to lose weight, get RDX at your drugstore now. It makes sense, then, that as weight loss becomes this thing that women are doing and reading about in women's magazines, that it becomes a type of social behavior, too. It's fairly common for women, um, in particular, to share information or to tell stories about what they don't eat, what they do eat, as a form of bonding. Meet the second joy in our two-part diet culture detox, and this time, a joy with a Ph.D. Dr. Joy Cox is a scholar and activist from Philadelphia. She now works for Rutgers Medical School, helping underrepresented students. She's also spent a lot of time thinking about and studying the dieting dynamics that Haley shared. There's actually research on this, believe it or not, communication research that actually talks about fat talk and the ways in which it happens um, particularly around women, how they talk about their bodies, right? So like, no, I, I look fat in this. And then they say, oh, you don't look fat in this. I look fat in what I have to do. Or, you know, you don't need to lose 10 pounds. I need to lose 10 pounds. Joy even wrote her dissertation on this stuff. It's called Negotiating Identity and Taking Political Action in the Fat Liberation Movement. A movement started in 1967 with a Central Park protest, or fat in, as they called it. As Joy writes, the 500 folks in attendance ate ice cream, burned diet books, and defaced photos of that era's super-thin it girl and future America's Next Top Model judge, Twiggy. Two years later, in 1969, the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance was started to combat fat discrimination and mistreatment. But the reason we especially wanted to talk to Joy is that she brings a much-needed intersectional perspective to the women in dieting discourse. 
the roots of diet culture are just rooted in white supremacy. I don't think you really can get around that when we talk about the bodies that we demonize and the bodies that we scrutinize the most. Joy's right. What we didn't mention earlier in our dieting claptrap timeline is the the turn-of-the-century race panic that shaped weight loss targeted at American white women. Yeah, so the Industrial Revolution brought this wave of urbanization and immigration that prompts this whole white supremacist angst that society would, like, be ruined. Meanwhile, remember, guys like William Banting had decided that fatness was the ultimate sign of being unhealthy and morally weak. And one thing we should mention is that white native-born Americans were all about stereotyping immigrant women as overweight and uncivilized. So you do have stereotypes of the quote-unquote fat Irish women and stout Jewesses. So you mix white panic with moralized fatness. And by the early 1900s, you get white ladies increasingly being pressured to preserve themselves as aspirationally as possible in order to keep having aspirational white babies, which meant that thin came in really as a way to uphold whiteness more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And those racist roots sparked Joy's passion about fighting fat phobia, or the stigma that fat people in our culture face, whether they're buying a plane ticket, sitting in a doctor's office, or shopping for clothes. And doing that means providing women of color with the unique support they need to thrive in a white supremacist culture that's never really treated their bodies kindly. Like, you can't talk about fat phobia in those ways without dealing with the roots of white supremacy, without dealing with the ways in which Black bodies are marked and labeled, and the ways in which Black bodies and Black women's bodies in particularly have been used um, in society to mark something that is grossly insulting to us. You know, you can't talk about fat phobia without talking about Sarah Bartman. I mean, you can't talk about fat phobia without talking about mammies. So in her dissertation, Joy explores this concept of, quote, how dominant discourses often strip fat women of their femininity. And she points to this mammy archetype in particular. This is a mythical figure with roots in racism and slavery. You know, she's like the dark-skinned, larger-bodied, maternal figure who exists solely to comfort and care for white people. Like, think of Hattie McDaniel's character in Gone with the Wind. And a big reason why mammies are portrayed as fat is to suggest that they were being so well-fed and taken care of by their white slave owners. And Joy also mentioned the 19th century South African woman, Sarah Bartman, who was not an archetype, but who was certainly objectified. A British colonialist and total douchebag doctor essentially saw her while traveling in South Africa and was fascinated, particularly by the size of her butt. And he essentially kidnapped Sarah, took her to Europe, where she was literally put on display like a zoo animal. So crowds of white people could gawk at her. She was totally dehumanized. And today, even the way our bodies are measured doesn't offer a level playing field. Joy brought up the example of problematic BMI, body mass index, which uses body mass and height to supposedly assess obesity. However, not only does BMI ignore, like, actually important health factors like waist size, bone density, and musculature— It was originally devised by and exclusively for white Europeans in the 19th century. 
like black people are measured by a standard as it relates to white people, but it's not the opposite way around. So those standards, those measurements come from somewhere. So like when you are laying hold to diet culture, when you are laying hold to indoctrination that cannot be supported by research within your own group, then you are really in a lot of ways ascribing to something that is unrealistic and that's going to do more harm than good whenever it comes to your group. Joy isn't just speaking as an academic either. She's also found herself stuck on America's dieting hamster wheel, and her PhD is really the product of a lifelong journey of learning how to liberate herself and love her own body. More on that personal behind the political after the break. We're back talking to Dr. Joy Cox about how her relationship with her own body informs her research around fat liberation and identity. Joy's path to personal body positivity has a lot of the same stops as Haley's, but it also has some big differences because, as we learned in the claptrap, America's dieting dumpster was built for aspirational middle-class white ladies. Plus, every family that feeds us our foundational weight messages is different. Just like our unique snowflake bodies. Totally. For instance, whereas Haley's family coded eating with caution and guilt, Joy's family was far more, well, joyful about it. Yeah, so like food was like everything. (laughs) We gathered around food. We celebrated around food. Like you couldn't have a party without having food. And so living in Philadelphia, right, you have your staples, right? So we had our cheesesteaks. We had our soft pretzels. We had our water ice. Um, That's what we eat. And nobody questions like, nobody's asking about caloric intakes. Nobody's asking about, you know, Did you use the 2% milk to make the macaroni and cheese instead of the whole milk? Like food in a lot of ways was really about substance, right? It was about survival. Her family might not have been calorie counting like Haley's, but even from a young age, Joy was aware of her size. For one thing, she had sisters, all of whom were smaller than her. And this idea is captured for Joy in one specific memory from when she was just four years old. Joy's dad didn't live with her and her sisters, but he would come to visit them. And when he did, he'd pick them all up at the door and give them kisses. I remember he picked up my oldest sister. And, you know, he picked her up and, you know, do the whole airplane kiss, kissy face thing. And I was excited. I was hyped because I was next. <laughs> and then he picked me up. And when he picked me up, when he was on his way to put me back down, he said, you know, your dad, like, I'm not going to be able to keep picking you up like this. And I remember feeling sad about it, but then also kind of remembering like, hey, he didn't say that to my oldest sister. Like as a child, I think it makes you question like, well, hey, how come you can still pick up these people, but you can't pick up me? Like, what is it about me? That makes me different. In Joy's community and extended family, though, there were plenty of women around her who weren't tiny and weren't missing out on life because of it. Joy especially looked up to her Aunt Pearl, who was over 300 pounds, and as she puts it, lived her life out loud. 
Like my aunt never sat down with me and she never was like, you know, well, Joy, being fat is hard and it's going to, you know, and it's going to be a struggle. We never had any of those heart to heart talks, but just watching the way that she lived her life, how she lived her life without restriction, how she had fun, how she went to parties, how she threw parties, how she had lots (laughs) of friends. There was no shortage of romantic partners. Caroline, it's also important to acknowledge that thinness is not universally idealized among, like, all women in America. Like, first, white women are overrepresented in dieting and weight loss research. And body image studies suggest that women of color tend to have more positive feelings about their shapes and sizes. But for Joy, her feelings got a little complicated when she was just eight years old. That's when her family left their predominantly black neighborhood in Philadelphia. That's where Pearl lived. For Johnstown, Pennsylvania, a small, suburban, mostly white town a few hours away. I was then confronted with what, it, you know, spanks and, and strapping yourself down and wanting to have no belly and, and ascribing to bodies like, you know, Cindy Crawford. And like, no, you, you know, I, I was never going to be a Cindy Crawford. Yeah. Did any of your classmates affect how you thought about your body or, like, the desire to diet or anything like that? Um, I think from observations, I knew what bodies were in style and which ones weren't, <laughs> for mm-hmm. a lack of better words. You know, fat jokes, people being picked for stuff, not being picked for things, who was found to be attractive, who wasn't found to be attractive. Your body is not something that people are going to be interested in. Well, at least, and I'll clarify, at least not men your age, Mm -hmm. right? And so here's the flip side, Um, being super young, but I guess in some ways to some people having a grown woman body tended to attract grown men to over-sexualize your body. And then I'm like, I don't even know what they're talking about. Like, I had a man proposition me on the street. Joy was experiencing what scholars call the adultification of Black youth. For girls in particular, curvier bodies of color that don't conform to the white, thin ideal are often stereotyped and perceived as unruly, precocious, and even suspicious. Which may be why, around the same time she moved to Johnstown, Joy started thinking of ways she could change her body— She especially remembers an entire summer in middle school she devoted to Denise Austin workout videos. Let's begin with a good warm-up. Take a deep breath, inhale, and exhale. I was pissed, first of all. I dedicated three months to doing this, and there was no change. So I was mad at Denise Austin. Mm -hmm. I was mad at life. I'm just like, this is not like, this is not what the the front of the cover of the the VCR thing said. It said, if I did this, I was supposed to lose these inches. I didn't lose no inches. So tell us about when you first decided to go on a diet. So one of the things about (laughs) growing up poor, you don't get to decide what food you eat for the most Mm -hmm. part. But I don't think that I had real liberty to decide, you know, what food I was going to eat, honestly, until I was grown. For about eight years, starting in her early 20s, Joy dieted. She exercised with her roommates. She tried to eat salads. But surprise, false hope syndrome alert, it wasn't working. 
you know, you lose your five, 10 pounds of water weight and then you're super excited because you feel like you made progress and then you hiccup the wrong way and you gain 20. The yo-yoing was driving Joy crazy. Eventually, she tried the Atkins diet and she lost more weight than she ever had before. But she also couldn't think about anything else. She even skipped a visit home to see her family because she was worried the trip would throw her off her regimen. I was like, but Joy, that's your family. Like, you can't stop doing it. I was like, yeah, but these three pounds. At this point, Joy was in graduate school, which was a pretty big deal. She had graduated from college, first generation in her family to do so, and then she'd gotten a full ride for her master's. She studied military families. But Joy's success, just like her family, got eclipsed. Like, you know that you're smart and all of these other things, or should I say for myself, like, I knew that there were things that I accomplished in life, but focusing so much on your appearance has a way of making all of those things fade to black. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself, like, really in a lot of ways, like, objectifying myself. Then one day, Joy was watching the news. A report came on that caught her attention. They wanted to make fat a disability. And I remember being so angry and so riled up about this issue. This was Joy's breaking point. Fatness as a disability? She was tired and she was pissed. She needed to talk to someone about it and the best person she could think of was her advisor. You know, the faculty member overseeing her research on military families. And I went into the office and I said, I'm not doing that anymore. We're going to study weight stigma. And this is what I'm going to do my thesis on. And my advisor, he had no clue, like no idea whatsoever about anything about weight stigma. But I remember being so fired up and thinking to myself, like, there's something that I have to do about this. Talk about productive rage. And it turns out that a major contributor to African-American women's weight gain and difficulties dropping pounds isn't because they aren't doing enough Denise Austin videos or eating too many carbs. According to a nationwide Black women's health study, the chronic stress of experiencing both racism and sexism on the daily is a major predictor of weight gain. And so what I learned is that as I started to divest from these things, I started to feel again. Like I was able to kind of think again, like my mind started to clear up again, like kind of coming out of like a fog of like what matters and the only things that do matter and, and you know, whatever. And what matters is the work Joy is doing now. And imagine, she's talking about how her mind cleared after she ditched dieting. Like, what if all of us gained that clarity, too? Joy's contributing to the dialogues that women and feminists need to be having right now. We need to make our diet culture and body-positive convos intersectional, y'all. From your perspective, do you think that the current body positivity movement and moment is welcoming to women of color? Does it embrace the needs and desires of women of color? <laughs> so I think that within the realm of body positivity, women of color have created their own lane because they did not feel heard by people in the body positive movement. So very much like women's liberation, you have all these women that come together and they say, well, we're all women. So as women, these are all our issues. And then Black women say, well, actually, my issue is a little bit different because of X, Y, and Z. And instead of people being willing to sit and learn, 
they get drowned out by like, no, that's divisive. Well, we're all women. Like, yeah, but like liberation is not just one dimensional. And unless people are willing to understand the ways by which these different intersections are impacted, what it means to be black and fat in society is different than what it means to be white and fat in society. And there's more things that get attributed to our blackness and our fatness simultaneously that white fat people will never have to deal with, ever. And not having an ear to hear those things is what causes the rift in body positivity and in fat acceptance, and people create their own lanes as a result. Kristen, so much of what it seems like we're trying to do when we're focused on dieting is to make ourselves into some, like, mythical, better version of ourselves. I mean, that's at least what dieting culture is selling us. But we lose track of the fact that the pursuit can end up making us really unhappy, not to mention unhealthy. And listen, like, speaking from personal experience, like, I don't have to be actively dieting for this stuff to get in my head. And Caroline, I mean— I guess I'm a professional feminist or whatever, but I still have to keep my brain in check about how I see myself in the mirror, whether I'm just, oh, accidentally forgetting to eat a meal, like especially if my anxiety really kicks up. So the more consciousness that we can raise about the realness of dieting and weight loss claptrap, the better. For sure. I mean, all of us and young girls especially deserve better than worrying about whether they're fat. And Caroline, one positive thing that I think we have to shout out before we wrap up is the fact that there are moms out there. I know some of these moms who are actively trying to break this generational diet culture cycle, particularly in their relationships with their daughters. Like, I know women who are really intentional about fat talk and body talk around their daughters and how they talk about their own bodies. And it's hard work for them. So I just want to say thank you to moms out there who get it and who want to do better by girls. And also, too, if you are a Haley out there who needs to have a conversation with a loved one, maybe this episode could be a gateway for that. And y'all, this does not have to be where the conversation ends. In fact, if you want to keep it going, you can go check out our episode, How to Have a Yoga Body with the queen of body positivity, Jessamine Stanley. It's episode number three, if you haven't checked it out. And we want to hear from you. Tell us, how have you navigated diet culture's hamster wheel? Do you ever find yourself still spinning out? What's your inspiration for staying grounded? Email us at hello at unladylike.co or hit us up on social at unladylikemedia. And don't forget, y'all, we have a ton of resources and sources on our website at unladylike.co. So be sure to check those out if you're trying to make a change. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our newsletter. Get good news about women in the world delivered to your inbox every Wednesday. Also, check out our merch. We've just added some amazing new stuff to the shop like t-shirts, sweatshirts, and koozies, which means you can flip off the patriarchy while enjoying a Beverly. And yeah, that's what we call beverages (laughs) around here. So really, what could be better? Head over to unladylike.co slash shop. 
Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Rattlet. Special thanks to Claire Teague and Paulina Velasco. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week, the patriarchy goes to work. And so do we. I imagine like a feminist LinkedIn where we get to sort of list all the skills that we developed, figuring out how <laughs> yes. to like deal with like a world that kind of wasn't set up for us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. How to be how to work in retail and be sexy enough for sales, but not sexy enough for inappropriate comments. Oh, God. We're talking about sexism in the workplace and getting all the advice we can possibly fit into one episode. Make sure you subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Denise Austin workout videos. Okay, let's go. All right. (laughs) Joey sounds a little bit out of breath. (laughs) Stitcher.